0: Take out your sermon outline, if you would, and open your pew Bibles to page 992. Uh, I have my text scattered throughout the outline, but I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, And the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. they will see me. Without a doubt, the Christian cross is the premier and preeminent symbol of Christianity. And through the centuries, people have remembered the gospel of Jesus by looking at a cross and remembering it. We are a church filled with praise for the Lord Jesus Christ who became the Lamb of God and who went to the cross to be sacrificed for our sins where He was our substitute and took the wrath of God upon Himself and cried out then, It is finished! And our sins were atoned for, paid in full, and then He yielded up His Spirit and He died. We remember the cross. Over the past several weeks, a few observant people have noticed that our, our regular cross has looked a little different. It's the same one, but, but it looks a little different because on the front of the cross, there are these Latin letters, I-H-S. And sometimes you'll see a cross with a, actually a little sculpture of Jesus hanging dead there. Or other times you have what's called a Christogram, the letters IHS in Greek or in Latin that represent the corpus, the body of Jesus hanging on the cross. And so some of you have noticed that actually we've had the crucifix facing the congregation for the past six weeks. And I've decided to do that because those were the weeks as Jesus in his passion approached the cross and the darkness came over the land, and the wrath of God fell upon him, and he was slain for us. But with the reading of our text today, we're going back to the way it usually is, because Jesus is not dead on the cross. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The grave is empty, and we in our church do not simply remember what He did for us on the cross, but the great work of Jesus and of God the Father and the Holy Spirit of raising Him from the dead. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we celebrate the cross, but we do not need to just see a puny, shriveled, shrunken, beaten, defeated, dead Savior, for He is alive And that's really the first point of my sermon this morning. The angel has a message for you that he gave to the ladies who came to the tomb. If you set the scene, another great earthquake shakes Jerusalem. And an angel intrudes from heaven and comes to the tomb, and he rolls the mighty stone away and sits upon it. The guards that were there to protect, to make sure no shenanigans happen. The guards, it says, are overwhelmed. They faint. Ah. And they become like dead men, it says in the text. Meanwhile, the women have come to the tomb to see the body of Jesus. And the angel speaks to the women. And he speaks to you today. What does he say? For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Just as he said, he predicted it, didn't he? All through our study of the Gospel of Matthew, he predicted it, and now it came to pass. Just as he said. And this, friends, is of first importance. You say, wait a minute, I thought Matthew, Mar- I thought Martin, Pastor Martin, told us last week what was of first importance, that he was buried. And, and and wait a minute, Pastor John, I thought you told us three weeks ago that the cross of Christ is of first importance. What were we doing? We were quoting from First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. And each of these weeks, Martin and I have been claiming that. Passage as an interpretive New Testament text. Look at what it says. It's in your outline. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the cross. He was buried. That's what Martin told us last week. Jesus tasted the fullness of death and experienced and led the way through death uh, for us. That's of first importance. And then Paul says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's nickname, to Cephas and to the apostles. Oh, my friends, we Christians believe, you teenagers in the bridge class, you young people here, we Christians believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth in time and in space in history. It was not an illusion. It was not a mass delusion. It was not a myth. We believe it happened in space and time. Now, there are skeptics. Maybe there's someone watching online who would say, yeah, I'm a skeptic. Or maybe there's somebody here who says, I'm a modern person. We don't believe in that sort of Stuff. Well, I'm not here today to make the big argument on the uh, historicity of the resurrection, but I will tell you this tremendous book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, is a very helpful catalog of many judges and lawyers and scholars and professors and poets, of people who have investigated with a fair judicial temperament McDowell says, have looked into the historical evidence, and they have found that they are persuaded that this is true in time and space. But of course, our doctrine of Scripture doesn't need us to judge Scripture. We still have Scripture, which speaks the truth to us. But anybody who wants to borrow, photocopy, look at this, or I'll buy you a copy. If you're a seer, if you're serious, about wanting to address your skepticism, I commend this book to you. It's very helpful. But listen, my friends, the resurrection of Jesus is more than just an interesting historical incident. You know, you're watching Channel 12, and the newscaster says, uh, and in other news, Jim, there's this guy named Jesus who was dead, and, and now... Three days later, he's alive. Isn't that interesting? Well, is that just it? There's so much more to this, just as there's so much more to the cross than the newscaster reading, well, Jim, unfortunately, there was this innocent guy who got railroaded in a kangaroo court, and he was murdered brutally, hung on a tree. Isn't that a shame? And in other news, and we remember when we studied the cross, there was an earthquake then. The sky grew dark. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Christ received the curse of God in our place there, and He suffered and died, making atonement for our sins as the Lamb of God. That is That is the explanation of the event. Well, now there's another earthquake three days later. All right? And what do we have? Accompanying the resurrection of Jesus is this angel, this intrusion from heaven. Down he comes. The earth shakes. The stone is rolled away. And these mighty Roman soldiers, these tough Roman soldiers... What is happening? Oh, my friends, here's the answer. This is the intrusion of heavenly resurrection life into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and into the lives of His people through the victory of Jesus over sin and death. How could He stay dead? That's what Junior asked in his prayer. How could He stay dead? The wages of sin is death, but Jesus never sinned. So death could not hold him, and he rises in triumph over the grave. Oh, my friends, what does this mean for us? Well, it means, number one, it means that you, too, will rise after you die. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that you are just becoming worm food? That's it. You're going to disintegrate. Your brain waves stop. You are annihilated. That's it. Is that what you believe? That's not what's going to happen. The scriptures tell us God will raise us all from the dead on that great day. And Jesus said, He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and will experience eternal life with me in heaven forever. But secondly, it means that you now in this day have entered into eternal life. You have already begun eternal life. When does eternal life begin? It begins technically with what the Bible calls your regeneration. When you are born again, you are given a new life. And the Apostle Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a, fill in the blank, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so it begins in your life and my life. Listen to me carefully. Christianity is not about niceness. That's what some people think. Oh, I have my religion so that I can be a nicer person. I know lots of atheists who are probably even nicer than I am. Christianity is not about niceness. And niceness won't get you into heaven. Christianity is about newness, being made new. It's not about information. It's about transformation. The new life of Christ comes in us. Look at, in your text, In your outline at Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. It's not by niceness. It's all by grace. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then when he writes to the church in Colossae, to the Colossian church, look at how he puts it. Colossians 2, 12 and 13. Picture that he's writing to you. You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. There you have it. What's of first importance? He forgave your sins at the cross. He made you alive in the resurrection. Do you see? What does this look like? In my life, you've heard me confess how I lived with this massive self-preoccupation. It's all about me. That's life. It's it's all about me looking out for number one. And then somehow I find myself following Jesus, believing in Jesus. I find myself loving the Lord, experiencing his love, and lo and behold, I actually start caring about other people. A narcissist who actually cares about other people. Can you imagine that? someone who felt alone. I was, I was alone. I mean, I was very popular. I had go- oodles and oodles of friends, but I felt alone, even in big crowds. Then I become a Christian, and I have these new brothers and sisters, and I am adopted into the family of God where there is love like I have never known before. And I came from a good family, don't get me wrong, but nothing like the sweetness of the body of Christ and I, I loved my money. And I was stingy. And then I learned how generous Jesus Christ was to me. And I learned how to sit loose on my possessions. I'm still a work in progress. You know, don't, understand that I'm still a work in progress. But it began, and it's happening. And it's happening to you. If you're a Christian, this is what's happening to you. Do you see? Anybody remember the story of St. Augustine? St. Augustine, before he was a Christian, was quite the ladies' man. And he had many mistresses, and his relationships with his mistresses were not very healthy. After he became a Christian, he's out in his backyard one day, And over the wall on the other side is one of his former mistresses. And she calls out to him. She says, Augustine, it is I. He's silent. So she says again, Augustine, it is I. And he says, Yes, I know but it is no longer I. What was he saying? He was saying, I, now, now that I'm a follower of Jesus, now that I have this new life, I have a fundamentally new life, and it doesn't include having mistresses anymore. He was changed, you see. Jesus is after you. He's pursuing you. Point number two is this briefly, very briefly, Jesus comes to you with warmest greetings. And there's that one word. I just want, don't want to skip over it. In verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And I don't just want you to hear that he greeted them, I want you to hear that he greets you. He's personal, it's personal. He knows you by name. He wants to be with you. He wants to touch and encourage your heart and to bless you. Again, we read this earlier in the service, but if you're just watching the sermon online in John chapter 20, there's the the uh, other account of, of the Apostle John. And she's standing by the empty tomb and she encounters the angels in the tomb and they said to her in verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. See, she thinks he's still dead, okay? And then she thinks she sees someone who is the gardener. But who is it? You know who it is. <laughs> it's Jesus. She just doesn't recognize him because he had been so bloody with a crown of thorns, and he'd been so beaten. And, and he, whoever this person is doesn't look like that. And so she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, she sobs, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And I love this next verse. I love what Jesus does in his simplicity, in his beauty. Jesus does not say, Ta-da! I have reversed the curse that fell on the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. New life has now come to the planet. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says her name, Mary. Can you imagine the Son of God saying your name? The thrill inside her soul. It calls to mind, for me, Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. See, that's coming into the soul of Mary with electricity. And he calls you by name. He knows your name. And his affection is set upon you. And he summons you as he summoned Mary. And she turns to him and she responds, Rabboni. And she worships him. And this this point is just this. He calls her by name. He's calling you by name. We call it effectual calling. Maybe he's not calling somebody else out there. But by the very fact that you're watching online... or your dad made you come today, or your wife made you come today. I don't know. Your friend brought you. He's calling to you. It's not me. We actually believe the Lord is calling to you today, personally. And he says, go tell the other disciples. See, it's not just Mary. Tell the other disciples, I want to be with them too. Do you get that? I want to be with them. Let's go to Galilee, that lush, beautiful place where we were uh, before. Let's be together there. Well, how does she respond? Point number three, turn over your outline. She responds in worship. And it says, They came and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. These women are not indifferent She didn't look at her watch and say, how long is this going to go on? (laughs) She hears his call, and she is drawn to him, and she worships him. What else can she do? With great joy, with holy fear, with reverent awe, it says they took hold of his feet. And this detail, the specificity of detail is so cool. Because, you know, among the skeptics, there, were lots of, there are skeptics out there, and they say, well, you know, probably he, um, it was just a hallucination, wishful thinking. You know, F- Sigmund Freud taught us about wish projection. Listen, friends, they touched him. They clasped his feet. His resurrection is bodily, okay? No hallucination here. And yet, these women are supposed to represent you and me. They are a type of the post-resurrection church of Jesus, full of joy, eager to worship, longing to be with him. And sometimes I have to confess, Oh, Lord, my heart grows cold. Am I the only one? Why, how could our hearts grow cold toward Jesus? What's my problem? What's your problem? It is that we lose our longing to be with Him. That's why he writes in Colossians 3, verse 1, he says, Then if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. I mean, what's so great about things above? You want to get in the plane? Who's the guy who's chartering his own plane to outer space? Is that next month or something coming up? For a couple million dollars, you two can go above? No, that's not what he's talking about. It's not in our space and time, it's in the heavenly heavens, the highest heavens, where Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Is that far away beyond Saturn or Jupiter? No. No, it's close. It's just in the other world, in the real world of heaven, you see. And you set your mind and you seek Christ. What makes heaven great is that Christ is there. God is there. The Spirit is there. That's what makes paradise paradise. The Lord is there. But I forget his triumph. I forget his greeting. I forget his welcome. My heart grows cold. You know, I was reminded this week of that Old Testament character, Mephibosheth. Does anybody remember Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth, he was a guy in the family of the enemies of King David. And those enemies of King David tried to kill King David, but King David prevails. And Mephibosheth's family is done away with. But David says, is there anyone left? And Mephibosheth is this, frankly, pathetic, lame enemy of David. He can't even walk. He has to be carried wherever he goes. And David says, from this day on, Mephibosheth is welcome at my table. Welcome to the table of the king. And he calls Mephibosheth by name, and they bear him to David's table. And all that Mephibosheth needs is provided out of mercy by the king who loves him, his enemy. Who is this? This is a picture of Jesus Christ, and Mephibosheth is a picture of me, and he is a picture of you. And does that not make you long to be with him? Oh, friends, we we need to study who Jesus is. Richard Baxter, the 17th century Puritan, he said, learn to practice the soul-ravishing exercise of heavenly contemplation. You're watching in the bridge class. What is the soul-ravishing enterprise of heavenly contemplation? It is to set your mind on Christ and to ponder His glory, His beauty, and His greatness, and let it attract you. I, I, I heard a sermon by a friend of mine, Howard Donahue, and he, you know I hear him pray sometimes, and I feel so puny. I sense you know, he's a great student of the Puritan. I hear him pray, his longing for Jesus. And Donahue, he says this. He gives this advice. He says, When in this life you taste, hear, see, feel something wonderful, then say to yourself, I wonder how great this will be in the next life. It will be even greater. This is just a hint. And likewise, he says, When you experience, ouch, in this world, back pain, mortgages, debt you can't meet, relational pain, then say to yourself, it will not be so in the next life. And he said, I have a prediction for you. If you are in Christ, the moment of your death will be the happiest moment of your existence so far. you think about that. Is that true? Will that be true? Everybody else is going to be going, boo-hoo, you died. And okay, we will miss you. But for you... I promise you, that will be the happiest moment of your existence. And so Howie said, you know, I, I tell my wife, I think I'm going to tattoo DNR on my chest because I don't want the doctors to impede my momentum from this world into the next. When it's time for me to go, I'll go, tattoo it, DNR, on here. I don't want them making a mistake. Can you imagine what God has in store for you in the new heavens and the new earth? How wonderful it will be. C.S. Lewis, he wrote at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, which this passage I've read at many funerals. He writes about that moment when the Pevensey family perishes in a railway accident. They have all died, and they find themselves suddenly in the green of Narnia. And he writes, The school year is over. The holidays are here. The dream is ended. This is the morning. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last... They were at the beginning of chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, and this story goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the last. And they did live at last, happily ever after. If you are cold in your love for Christ, Practice this uh, uh, soul-ravishing contemplation of heaven. Now, some of you, I look around this room, and some of you don't need practice longing for heaven. I know that. Some of you do live with chronic pain, and you have experienced tragedy and heartache in your life. And your life is hard. And so for you, for you, yes, there is a desire to meet the Lord and to see Him face to face and you love to worship Him for He comes and comforts you. But most of us, most of us have far more comfort than anywhere else in the world and throughout all of history. And so we are largely content. And so there's a danger for us, we who have experienced such comforts We need to learn a holy dissatisfaction, Richard Baxter says. And you do it by contemplating the superior excellence of Christ. Are you with me on this? They worshipped him. And then the passage finishes. Point four, go and tell others this good news. You notice, Jesus doesn't say, now keep this to yourself. This is our little secret. This is for our little holy huddle. Just us, we're so precious. This is not members only. What does he say? Go. Preach this good news of the resurrection. And you preach it to three people. You preach it to yourself, you preach it to the church, and you tell it to the world. You need to tell it to yourself because like I just said, you leak the gospel. You forget the gospel. Again, I heard last week, I'm I'm 64 years old. Now, the Social Security uh, tables, they predict that on average a guy like me will live another 19 years. Maybe I'll get to 84. Maybe. But you know, statistically, close to 700 men my age will die in the United States of America this week in the next seven days. It's not just us old guys. Statistically, there will be 300 children under age 14 that will die in car accidents in the next seven days. There will be 100 teenagers. I'm sorry. There will be 30 children, 30 children who will die of car accidents in the next seven days. And there will be a hundred teenagers who will die in car accidents in the next seven days. James asks, What is your life? And he answers it. What is your life? It's a mist, it's a vapor. We saw the children here, how fast they grow up. Yeah, the days are long, but the years are fast. What should you do? Hmm. You should write a will to remind yourself you're going to die. Maybe you want to buy a, buy a casket and a plot somewhere to remind yourself that you're going to die. The Trappist monks, you know, I was listening to this podcast about how the Trappist monks make beer. And um, in their monasteries, they always have an open grave in the courtyard, in the cemetery that's part of, adjacent to their courtyard. There's always an open grave there. And one of them dies, <laughs> they put them in, they cover them over, and they dig another one to remind themselves that one of us may fill that hole next. They live with an awareness of of, of their need for the resurrection of Jesus and that life is short. Preach it to yourself. And then tell your friends in the church because they need to hear it. They need the encouragement. As they go through their struggles, through their loneliness, through their pain and struggles against sin and and struggles in this life, your friends, your brothers and sisters need to be reminded, this is not the end. He's coming again. He's going to raise us from the dead. We will be together forever in heaven. We need to encourage each other. We need to do that. And then Jesus tells us to take it to the world and your friends in school. Even your professors at college, they need to hear it. Your next door neighbor, your cousin, your uncle, your father or your child, they need to hear the gospel. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. Will you do that? Will you go? Let the love of Jesus Christ fill you so full that it overflows and splashes out of you. To everyone you meet, let us pray. Oh, our Father, how we thank you that he is not dead, he is alive. And we rejoice in him now. Lord, we come to communion, to the Lord's Supper, and we pray that you will meet us and fill us, Lord, with uh, your grace and your love. Greet us now. Kiss us. Come close to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.